What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to The Real State of Retail. This is episode three. I hope you already tuned in to episode two with Andy Siegel and Jose Santana of The Siegel Group. Today, we have an amazing guest, Wilbur Breslin, a pioneer of the retail and real estate industry. Welcome to the Real State of Retail podcast. We are your hosts, Jason Ciano and Russell Helbling. We are retail and real estate experts that focus on emerging concepts in the food, fitness, and wellness sector with a flair for social media and digital marketing. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the post-internet impact on the retail and real estate industries. Each episode will feature inspirational guests and thought leaders in their respective fields, giving their input on how they believe retail and real estate will look tomorrow. Now let's get it popping. Today's episode of The Real State of Retail is a very, very exciting episode for me, uh, for Russell as for well. For both of us. Obviously. Um, we both started in the commercial real estate business under the mentorship of a man by the name of Wilbur Breslin. And we're sitting here today with Wilbur Breslin, and we're going to learn a lot about his career what he enjoys doing when he's not working, the limited time that he's not working, <laughs> um, and uh, just how the industry has changed drastically, obviously, over the last half decade or so that you've been in business. So, Mr. Breslin, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show. And uh, let's just start with the, a basic question. How did you get started in commercial real estate? Thank you, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I was not really real estate oriented, although when I was 16 years old, uh, I happened to have an appointment with a friend of mine by the name of Bob Frankel. And his father was known in those days as the dean of real estate because he had sold the building to Abraham and Strauss and made a lot of money. And then migrated to Garden City where he did the same thing. Uh, ANS was across the street, they wanted his building, and he sold it. So I was, of course, listening to that story very well. And one day, I happened to be in a store, and Lou Frankel, the elder Frankel, said to me, uh, come on, Willie, take a ride with me. So I got in the car, and we drove, and he took me to Republic Airport. And there, all of a sudden, a small little plane came down, one of these Piper Cubs and so forth. Sure. Flew down, the door opened up, and a man uh, that was not well-dressed, but he had khaki <laughs> pants on and an open shirt and a hat, okay, went, went down, greeted Lou Frankel, put his arm around him and so forth, and as we did, we went back into the car, and, uh, and Lou Frankel said, uh, we're gonna have lunch at the Garden City Hotel. And he turned to me, he says, Willie, you come, you're gonna have lunch with us. And I was mystified because I didn't know what I was getting into, but of course I said, well, yes, Mr. Frankel. And they, so we went, we had lunch, and it was like a, uh, a ping pong match or a tennis match. I'm going like one side to another and, and so forth and listening, and they're talking retailing, they're talking real estate, and these kind of things. So I was really mystified. And of course, when we were introduced, he said to me, uh, say hello to Sam Walton. I, I had no idea who Sam Walton was. Wow. wow. And in those days, Sam Walton had one store. Unreal. In, in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas? In Bentonville, Arkansas. He had one store. And he knew Lou Frankel, and his practice was to fly all over the country through friends of his and talk about retailing. And, and that was the purpose of his visit that day. So I was really mystified about it, listening to this conversation. I was only 16 years old. That's amazing. I didn't get into the real estate business until I was 27. First through residential single yes. family homes? Okay. Yes, uh, and, and from 27, for 12 years, I was in the residential uh, portion of it, buying and selling houses and so forth uh, in there. And I started with exactly $1,000. Okay, which my father gave me before we sold out his stores and he went to Arizona and there. 
And then I got into the commercial end 12 years later. And then that's my start. So I don't want to bore you with the details of sure. that. No, that's that that's great. And you know, you've you've gone on, you know, from that time where you transitioned from residential into the commercial side. You've pioneered a lot of things in retail, um, front field parking for, for supermarkets, yes. bringing way over you know, 70, 80% of national retailers to Long Island, right? I've read, read different statistics on that. Well, I'll quote Newsday, 85%. They, uh, even better. Right. Um, and you know, I've watched you do that, and I've tried to mirror that in ways, you know, uh, by bringing new companies to Long Island also in other markets. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about when you started to focus more on the retail side of things. Um, it was primarily through brokerage initially, but you've also been a very successful developer. So how did that transpire? Well, I have to go back a little ways before that because my father was in the fruit and vegetable business. And that probably, not, not that I knew about it at the time, but that probably taught me more about the real estate business than anything. Hard to say how a fruit and vegetable store, but my father had 12 stores. Wow, I didn't so know that. So it was a, uh, an experience that really enabled me later on in years to implement the, those things that I did in the fruit business into the real estate business. I'm assuming you mean merchandising, where to put things, Mer how to get eyes right. on them. Yeah, and my uncle, who was part of my father's team, in his 12 stores, always was a great uh, showman. And he kept saying, if you can't sell the tomatoes in this spot, you've got to put the tomatoes in another spot until you find the right spot to move it. Real estate is no different. Right. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. So the, the transition into retail, retail real estate, uh, Obviously, you've done a lot of work with all of the biggest, you know, retailers basically in the in in the country, in, in the world. Uh, Walmart, you already mentioned. Yes. Uh, for anybody who's listening who didn't make the connection well, between Sam days, Walton, right. in those days, I wasn't doing business with Walmart. <laughs> right, you had met, met Sam, Sam Walton. Uh, right, and and nor did that uh, meeting uh, help me in any way uh, to do so, but it got me interested in it. And when I did meet Walmart. Uh, I really forget the initial circumstances, but I didn't like them at all. Uh, they, they, they seemed very uh, uppity and they seemed very uh, aggressive, too aggressive uh, and so forth. And so when I finally did uh, some business with them and the first two uh, deals I did with them was on Long Island, uh, and, and of all places, Middle Island and uh, uh, Center Reach. Were those the first stores on Long Island? Those yeah. were the first stores, and only because the, uh, the, the, in those days, they wouldn't even look at a location, at a store, unless you gave them a letter from the owner, okay? If, in, in the case that I'm talking about, in both of those cases, I was not the owner, I was merely the broker. And so I had to get letters from them that the rent was under $7 a foot. Wow. Other, other than that, they wouldn't go out and look at it. Right. So if you look at the locations, which they are still in today, which is uh, uh, Center Reach and uh, Middle Island, they're like only three and a half miles apart, okay? But because even then, that many years ago, there was nothing for under $7 a foot except the boondocks, wow. right. which these two locations were. If you, if you go to those locations today, they don't look too great to begin with today. Right, even today. Right. Let alone how many years ago that we're talking, which is probably going back now, I think it was probably 40 years ago. And was, this, was it $7 all in or $7 net rent? Net, net, net rent in there. Uh, all in became a uh, a new thing. A, uh, a, a discussion many years later. In there, we don't talk the all in. We talk net. Right. In, right. In retail, we we talk net rents. And, and I'm curious to know. So when you say when you first met Sam Walton, when you were 16, obviously you didn't get into the business till you were 27. At that point, he had one store. Once you started doing retail deals with them, 
in that amount of time, how many stores a day open? Do, are you, are you, do you know? Did they? No, I, I don't know offhand, but they have to be. But like hundreds would, of stores at I that point? I would say hundreds in, in that period of time. Wow. I mean, and today it's how many? Thousands. Thousands, right. In there. But uh, uh, I had real good experiences with them, although, although it started off very rocky. But I'll tell you how good the uh, uh, relationship became. Uh, when going many years later, and it was uh, I was on a first name basis with some of the top people. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Eric Zorn. Sure. But Eric Zorn was the top real estate uh, person for Walmart for uh, umpty ump years. I forget how many uh, when he was there, and uh, I didn't meet him until at least five years or six years after I started to do business with Walmart. And I met Mr. Zorn after they finished a a field trip, and they invited me to dinner, which is also an unusual uh, happening in in Walmart world. Sure. But they did to a local restaurant, and I met him for the first time. And uh, we had a detailed discussion about certain locations, and that set it off, because evidently, uh, I was right in picking the stores for Walmart initially. They did unusual volumes that they never expected to do on Long Island because they, like others, like Target and uh, you name it. Home uh, Depot, right? They came uh, in. and uh, did, did, Yeah, when I, when I did the first four uh, Home Depots, it was the same thing. They came in, and even back then, Long Island's real estate taxes, utility bills, were all something they weren't used to, okay? You had to educate them as to why they should succumb and take subject to those uh, conditions that they knew. And uh, Kmart, for instance, uh, I spent 25 years doing that, educating and so forth before I made the first Kmart deal on Long Island. Uh, So it really was an educational process because we have unusual things here on the island, going back even 50, 60 years ago. And they've emanated all the way back through, getting worse and worse. But the volumes that you have today uh, make it uh, commensurate and make it worthwhile for the individual retailer. And as you know, whenever we have uh, a, a happening, a recession or whatever, And just as we're going through right now, there's a transition taking place. It doesn't take long to relet these uh, properties in there. And that's why people come back for for more of Long Island's uh, volumes that uh, they've been very happy about. And even the great Walmart, uh, when when they, they started to pay rent only because they found that they they were way off when they did their market studies. Sure. And I can tell you detailed versions, but I don't want to take up all the time <laughs> uh, on it, of how that was proven to them. And how did their, th- so you were saying it was $7, right? They wouldn't even look at it. At what point did they say, we can pay more? And did they say, was it still a they set never, number? They, they never would say <laughs> we can pay more. That's, that's not gonna happen. But when you showed them value, and you showed them that they, this is why they have to pay more sure. to cover expenses and to leave a profit, okay? They made the decision to do so. But it was only through an educational process. It wasn't because they had a great store before and, and therefore uh, they still had the same attitude because the, the first great store that uh, we did for them where volumes went out of sight was on a Sconset Highway, right next to where there's a uh, BJ's. Yeah, East to talk it. Pardon me? East to talk it. Yeah, correct. And, and then after that, uh, we, we hit certain highlights, but the b- big one was when we did East Meadow. Right, now, Clear Meadow. East, East Meadow was a site that took me two and a half years to convince them to go on. 
because it was, we're thinking about it, we're going to committee, over two and a half year period. And finally, Eric Zorn, that day that he called me from a field trip to have dinner, he was the one who made the final decision that to go. And the problem was that we couldn't meet any of the criteria of Walmart, parking, configuration, any of that. We, we couldn't meet. Plus Nassau County taxes, right. I'm sure they're... Uh, yes, yeah. all, all of that. Yeah. And we had to overcome each one. Uh, and, and finally, Eric Zorn made the decision, we're going to go. Okay. Uh, and I was a little upset that they said decided to go because Home Depot was on my back to pay $5 a square foot more <laughs> for 127,000 feet. Wow. Sure. But in any event... We did the deal, was extremely successful. Their volumes were out of sight, okay? Did you negotiate percentage rent in that deal? No, no, you no. don't get percentage rent. <laughs> not, no percentage rent from no, Home Depot, no, okay. No, I you, mean, from Walmart, sorry. Yeah, you, 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 that's, that's not <laughs> the partnership. <laughs> but that led, me, led them to another location, which is right on Route 110, which we now call Republic Plaza. Sure, sure. Polytechnic okay. Institute. And uh, I had already signed a lease with Walmart for 151,000 feet, migrating because when I first met them, their footprint was 134.5. In Wisconsin, I couldn't deliver 134.5. I can only deliver 127. Okay. And they turned me down. Wow. So it took me six months to convince them that we're making a mistake because they, they come from areas all over the United States where everybody delivers exactly what their criteria is, or otherwise there's no deal. They had the land, right. they had the so space to they, do so. They, they were never uh, used to what I was telling that this is Long Island, and Long Island has different real estate values and has different real estate. They thought I was out of my mind right. uh, in saying this to them. So it, it was an educational process for them. But then getting back to Eric Zorn calling me one day, but this time it's Eric and Willie on a first name basis. <coughs> and he says, <coughs> Willie, I have to change the deal. I said, what do you mean? This is a signed lease that we have. And he said, uh, we have to change the deal in this respect. I must have this store open a year from now. <laughs> and was there nothing there? It was dirt at this point? You got it. Okay. And, uh, and there was a lot of uh, site work to be done and a lot of contamination. There's all kinds of hurdles that we had on this piece. And they said, if I leave it to my people, he said, we'll get it done, but it, not 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 in a year. It'll probably be two or two or two and a half years. He says, and I know you can do it better than my people. So what I, the, the way I want to change the, change the deal is you're going to do all the site work, okay? And we don't have time to do detailed papers because when I started with Walmart, they had an 11-page lease, which they migrated to 150 pages <laughs> later on. He said, we don't have time to do that. So we'll keep a scorecard. You, you spend money, I'll sp be spending money. We'll keep the scorecard, and the, at the end of the job, we'll, we'll ante up, whatever it is. So that's what we did. And I won't bore you again with the details of the horror story, because uh, we had to do things that to, to get it done, but we did. We met the timetable, time uh, and, and we had the scorecard going uh, in there. And then the last surprise was when Zorn called me and he said, listen, he says, uh, and all I have said to him prior to that, I have said, look, the, the timetable you're giving me, we've got to open the store March 15th. When am I going to do the paving? Because the paving, by that time of the year, it's, oh, the parking lot is frozen, okay? <coughs> and he said, do it. He says, you'll have to tear up the whole parking lot again and do it all over again in June or July. He says, do it. <laughs> and I did it. It had something to do with Wall Street, I'm sure, For sure. In, in there. But anyhow, we finished this thing. At the end of the day, the scorecard read 
that Walmart owed me two and a half million dollars. <laughs> okay, so the story is is far from over. In there, all of a sudden, I had gone through four managers during the period of time because Walmart changes people usually from the inside. Right. Oh, they promote people, and the odd part of it, in my case, okay. You couldn't get a hold of anybody, so you you couldn't talk to anybody that had said that this is okay, that's okay, or whatever, in there. So we had to do things on our own, and then before long, lo and behold, and at the end, they change again, and the young man that I was doing business with, who is now all the way up in Walmart the echelon. Uh, in there, he's no longer there. Right. I can't even get him on the phone. Uh, in, in there, and in walks a lovely lady who was an attorney, by the name of Mary Rotla. Sure, sure. And we Mary were with Mary walks, last week. Uh, yeah, my, we were with Mary uh, last week. Right. And she walks in, and finally, I get to a very important part for me. Was by the way, can we talk about the two and a half million dollars? <laughs> yeah, it's and not she says, What's that? that? That I spent in good faith. Yeah, yeah. And she says, What's that? Right. And I was very upset about hearing, What's that? Yeah, that's scary. And, then, yeah. and Mary finally got into it, and she would come back periodically because she didn't have the time to spend on it. And she'd insist on seeing all of the invoices that made up the two and a half million dollars. And it took 11 months, oh. 11 months. And finally, I'm sitting in this room where we're sitting right now with about six people. And all of a sudden, the door opens. And it's one of my people. And she says to me, uh, Mr. President, could I see you? Well, really, nobody ever disturbs me when I'm in here right. like we're in right now talking. Sure. And I figure this has got to be something wrong at home. So I get up. And I walk outside. She said, I didn't know how to get you out, but I had to show you this. And she shows me an envelope. It says Walmart on it. I open it up. There's no letter. There's no note. But there's a check for $2.5 million. Wow. Believe that or not. I and, believe it. And, I believe and, it. And it's that's unbelievable. the story. And that's the way I did business with Walmart. That's it's incredible. incredible. Well, just to, just to uh, I guess, speak to the audience a little right. bit, because a lot of people... Uh, who will be listening to this podcast are not New York-based or uh, have never been in this building with us or in this conference room, and I want to describe it a little bit. So when you when you walk the office uh, corridors here at Breslin Realty Development Corp uh, and you're in the conference room, there's there are development plans with uh, with with tenants large and small throughout the office, throughout the conference room. And then there's photos with, with you, with, with Mr. Breslin, uh, with politicians, celebrities, you know, people of, uh, of importance throughout your career. Um, and it, it's always been amazing to spend time here, and I've always enjoyed that. Um, I do want to ask you, what I, I've heard so many of your war stories, yeah. and you know, and, and I love hearing them. Uh, and and I, this is an opportunity for people who don't necessarily know you to hear stories. So this is this is an amazing experience for me and and everybody listening. Um, I want to ask you of all of those accomplishments, challenges, everything you endure as a real estate person. Uh, what's the biggest challenge and and biggest? Uh, thing that you're you're proud of, like your greatest win, your greatest win in your career, let's say. Well, I, I would probably have to say that I guess it was around 1990, 91, and 92 that uh, it had been brewing for a good 20 years or so prior to that, <coughs> where we ran into the environmentalists and uh, as a developer. Uh, when I heard, first heard the word environmentalist, I, I didn't really know what they're talking about. And this was in the 70s. Okay. Uh, Probably and, not a positive response from you, right? You hear environmentalist, it, well, question marks. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't uh, positive, it wasn't uh, negative, because okay. uh, I really didn't know too much about it. Right. And, and I have to be truthful about that. But... As the years go on, and if you, if you see that map right on the street there, sure. that's when I started to assemble 2,000 acres 
in in uh, on eastern Suffolk County. So this this is a map of exit 68 of the Long Island Expressway, right. uh, which is the William Floyd Parkway. And the first tract was 1,100 acres that I bought from Levitt Sons, in there. And Levitt and I, Sons is that Levitt Town? Or yeah, who right. built Levitt Town? Okay, wow. right. I just wanted to Bill clarify. Yeah. <laughs> right, and uh, and then I accumulated another nine hundred acres later on. It's all shown on our map. Sure. Was that plan? I guess it's just this quick sidebar. So was the Levitts planning on building another? Uh, yes, Levitt Town. Levitt Town I know, right, and uh, then he decided to go to Iran and build. Rather than build out the, the <laughs> Iran was easier than major yes. Japan. Okay. major mistake. E- easier right. approval process in Iran <laughs> right. than Long Island. Right. Major, major mistake that he made. But in any event, I, I had these two thousand acres, and I was on vacation out in San Francisco, and all of a sudden I got a phone call from the head planner for the town of Brookhaven, <coughs> was a gentleman by the name of Jack Lucinger. And he was the town planner for the town of Brookhaven for 25 years. And a very bright man, very, he knew his job real well. And of course, I was a major player there with 2,000 acres as the largest landowner out there at the time. And he called me to tell me that I really have to go in and start the plot and get building permits on these 2,000 acres, which, who does that? And again, this Nobody is still this is the early 90s. This was, when I originally bought this, bought these 2,000 acres, this was like for 25 years hence sure. and stuff like that. So who's going to go out and spend the money to engineer all of the, the these plots, what he was asking for before? I thought he was overreacting to what was going on. But I should have listened to him because the rest is history. And it moved up with all of the trials and tribulations that we had over that 20-year period or so to a point that we had a lawsuit. And the lawsuit went to the Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state of New York. And I won it. I won the lawsuit. Wow. And uh, if you check back in Newsday in those years, you'll see it hit the front page. Sure. And it showed all of the builders popping champagne bottles, okay? And the only one that wasn't celebrating was yours truly. That lawsuit cost me $850,000, and that's not what I was upset about. What I was upset about is the Long Island builders didn't contribute, didn't participate, didn't do anything but listen, Right. okay? And now, when I was successful in winning the lawsuit, they're celebrating. Yeah. And I remember specifically calling the next day, Bud, uh, I, I can't remember his name for the moment, but it'll, it'll come to him over. He's a really n- a nice guy, big gentleman, and he was really uh, well uh, vetted in uh, Suffolk County real estate. Uh, and I called him and I said, uh, uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm not here to celebrate, and I, although I won a major victory, I know that I haven't won the war, far from it, and this is just the beginning. Notwithstanding of what I just said and so forth, I can never get them to come on board as they should have sure. in those days, so I had to go it alone. So now, and I litigated before we won that lawsuit for seven years. Wow. And during those seven years, I never met my adversary, which was Richard Amper, Dick Amper, okay? So I figured this was the best time for me to pick up the telephone and call him, which I did. And I wasn't celebrating on the phone with him, but I just merely said, and I remember those words, I, th- I said, I think we ought to sit down and see if we can work together to work out our problems, your concerns, my concerns, sure. and work together. And we did that. And we did that for approximately one year. And during the course of that year, I hired 18 scientists, 18 of them. Whenever I heard of a scientist that was the uh, the expert for the category involved. I hired him, so he didn't get him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to make a long Tactical. story short, yes. 
this all fulfilled itself when I had to do a three and a half million dollar environmental impact statement, which weighed 49 pounds. You mean the paper? Paper, yeah. <laughs> 49 pounds of paper, okay. And in those days, the publisher of Newsday was a gentleman by the name of Bob Johnson. Okay. He's the only one that I know that actually read every single page of those 49 pounds of paper. And he called me one day and he said, listen, I'm not gonna be able to have time to read it in my office, but I'm gonna read it on weekends. So you get these 49 pounds of paper over to my house. How, how big of a stack of paper is 49 <laughs> pounds of paper? Like this. So like three feet of paper? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is finished paper. Right. And, and to make a long story short, over the years, his wife once called me during the course of that. She says, I hate you. She says, he refused to I haven't to go seen out him in years. <laughs> on the weekends, he was reading it. And the end of the story was, he came to me, he called up and he said, you guys have done an excellent job. And he was prepared and did, in fact, support me wow. all the way through uh, the years that, that, uh, that were added on. Uh, to, to do things. But it led up to that point. And as a matter of fact, they recently, when I say recently, a few years ago, had a 10-year renewal. If you look at that picture right on the right-hand side, on the lower side, sure. you'll see Mario Como, the governor, and you'll see uh, uh, my adversary, Richard Amper. You'll see Tom DiNapoli, who's now the... Uh, Controller for the state of New York. Sure. All who in, uh, on the signing of the uh, the Pine Barrens Law, and the Pine Barrens Law was a good law, it, because it really looked into certain things. It's like everything else; it gets abused, okay, here and there over the years, and and, and so forth. But essentially and basically, it was a good law, and 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 and, and it made people cognizant. Of uh, that uh, of the environment, of how it's to be handled and respected. Sure. So it, it, it worked both ways. Uh, today it's become a little abusive with the pine barrens credits, credits yeah. Right. Yeah. that you, you have to go. But that was the part of the pie that Richard Amper and his cohorts uh, got. Were they traded back then like a commodity, like they're traded now? Not at now? the beginning. Not at yeah. the beginning. Okay. It, 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 it it's evolved, yeah. It got to that, because I remember getting called from the former county executive of Suffolk, I forget his name for the moment, and then he, it was also the, uh, the uh, head of the water uh, authority sure. out there. And I got a call from him, you better get out here tonight. I said, what about? He says, amp is up to his antics, okay? <laughs> and I came up and the whole wall walls were full of my land. And, and, and it said C-R-A. I, I don't even remember what C-R-A <laughs> And Ampa came over to me and he says, it's got nothing to do with you. And, 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 he, and when he said, you don't have to worry about it, that's when I started to worry right. about it. Right, yeah. Okay, and there were, there were things that happened that you couldn't believe, including uh, there was something... With all the acreage I had, there was at the last minute they pulled out 250 acres that should have been in, that was out. Okay. That I was supposed to get certain exemptions from. Sure. In there, and I found myself on a telephone at one o'clock in the morning. Okay, with Senator Laval. You heard that name. Sure. Before Tom DiNapoli. Okay. Telling them this is what our findings were. And this had to be rectified. And they said, well, it can't be because it's within the three-day, when they put up a bill for passage, there's evidently three days where everything is frozen. You can't make any changes. Sure. You're done. Okay. So they said to me, but we'll take care of it. I said, well, how are we going to take care of it? And when are we going to take care of it? So they promised me, because this is in the month of June when they passed these bills, and they, they said in July, well, it didn't happen in July, it didn't happen in August, and it didn't happen in September, it happened in October. And they did do what they said they were gonna do, which I was beginning to worry about. Sure. In, in there. But 
I said that was that was a challenge that uh, I didn't anticipate. Uh, it was very rewarding at the time, but recently, maybe five years ago, I had to go before the Pine Barrens Commission, and Willie Preston, who's that? <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't know. They don't know the history and your involvement. No, in not the, at all. Yeah, no. the, including the time when when this was uh, hit the press. And that day when the signing was taking place, okay, they they had it on what is called, I forget the name of it now, but I had donated to the town of Brookhaven 35 acres of land. And that's where they held it. And they had built a dais, okay, for celebrities or whoever you want, you want to talk about. Heads of state. And they had 80 seats. Of then they had all the t TVs, Channel 2, 4, 4, 12, everybody was there, okay. And uh, so they had names uh, uh, on, on the dais of where it was set. So I got up myself and I, I'm looking for my chair. <laughs> my name's not there. <laughs> my name's not there. Finally, when the festivities started, I'm out in the crowd and... Uh, the head of the uh, Bushwank, that was the name I, I couldn't think of. I knew, I knew you'd get it before we were yeah. done. You always Bushwank. do. Bushwank, okay, and there, is up there, and he was like a master of ceremonies. And, there, <laughs> and he says, where's Willie? Mm. And he's looking at the dais. Yeah. Okay. And I, I'm here. I'm out in the crowd. <laughs> in the general <laughs> admission <laughs> seats. <laughs> exactly. But everybody was there. Uh, uh, I would say 98% of the people there had nothing to do with the makings of that law. Sure. And, 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 but they were taking credit. Sure. So I, uh, I cover a lot of territory uh, in, in a day and in a week. Uh, not quite as much as you do, um, but I try. And everybody, you know, everybody um, in, in our world has worked with you, worked for you. You've had an amazing influence and, and really pioneered the industry in a lot of ways. Um, so whenever I see somebody and, and they know the association between us, they ask about you, uh, you know, uh, still still working, still, uh, yeah. you know, still still you ever see him? Does he ever come to the office? And, and I, I chuckle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about how you work tirelessly, uh, you know, obviously several days a week, let's say, and, and, you know, long days at that. You start early. Tell us a little bit about your typical daily routine, you know, how you start your day, how you end your day and then your week. Well, I, I, before you mention that, because glad you mentioned that, but an old friend of mine who recently passed away. No more than a year ago. Okay. Bill Griner. Sure. Griner Maltz. Griner Maltz. And there, we, we started out at about around the same time. I went into business in 1953, and I think he was around the same year. Okay. In, in there. Uh, he did primarily industrial. Right. He did industrial. Yeah. Okay. And he worked like I did. Same, same thing. Only he was even worse than me, because <laughs> he worked seven days a week up until the day he died which wow. is just less about a year ago wow in there in there and uh and to this day i still work five days a week right okay and i do work at home on saturday and sunday but to me that's relaxation sure in, yeah in there uh and uh and i love it i i i like what i do and that's why i do when when i go away which, uh, as the years progressed, is less and less when it should be more and more. Right. <coughs> but uh, I, t I turn it off. I've had that talent, and I call it a talent, to be able to turn it off. Sure. And, and, the, and I do relax, and I do have uh, my, my biggest hobby used to be tennis. I can no longer play tennis. Right. So I, I, I look for other, other things that, that I do. But uh, it's it's the same thing. If you do, if you like what you do, why not do it? Absolutely, it's, it's almost as if you're not working. Right. It never you're, feels you're, like work yeah, if you love enjoying it. Enjoying life. I so mean, what what time do you get up in the morning? 
three thirty, four o'clock. And you're you're typically it, it, in the office. When do you what do you do? Will you wake up? Just I, give us. Has, has, it, I, has yeah, it always been three thirty, four o'clock? I'm in my gym. I have a gym. Okay. So and you, I'm in the gym, and I, I'm, I'm there for about an hour. Okay. So you get and up, you yeah. work out. Right. Do you have a? Uh, you eat breakfast, and then yeah. then start your day. And I go to work. I'm in yeah. the office. Uh, this morning, I was in the office by six thirty. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. which is uh, you can accomplish a lot before lunchtime if you're yeah. in the office that early. We, we have people. I always start to smile when I pull up in in the and I have a driver now. Right. And then when we pull up and say, there's always two cars, three cars in a lot. Sure. Because we have people that come in that early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, primarily to help me. Did you always? I'm sure. Did you? Was it this always your routine? Up three thirty, four o'clock in the office well, by six, six thirty. Business, okay. I used to be down by the stores to unload the trucks at four o'clock. Wow. Even if I came home from New York, which I did a lot of those days, <laughs> I'm sure. And then that begs the question: What time would you typically go to sleep? Do you operate on on you know less than seven hours of sleep? And when I, when I was younger, I oh, used yeah. to operate on four and five. Wow, I can't. And, and that's yeah. amazing. Four and five now, I need seven to eight. Yeah. Yeah, still, still amazing. Uh, uh, to get a little bit away from business, I know that you have a background in jazz. That you, you're, you're a musician. Can you tell us a little well, bit about that? Uh, in, in a fashion, I had a lot of uh, musician friends. Right. Uh, my, my, my oldest. You knew one. Frank Sinatra too, correct? Yeah, yeah that that would yeah. be a good story. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, I haven't heard so, that one. So I was around a lot of musical people and so forth. And I did play when I was 16 years old. I made a major mistake. I had a scholarship to Miami University, music scholarship. Wow. And I didn't take it. Why? I was making $250 a week. You know how much? $250. My father, a respected businessman who had stores and everything, he made 100 100 a quarter. Uh, how and, how were you doing that? Yeah. How did you? I was playing music. Oh, okay, in, through music. In, in wow, Manhattan. wow. And that's in why Manhattan. you didn't take the scholarship. That's right. Okay, that was a mistake. Okay, that was a mistake. I, sh I, I should have. And what instrument do you play? I played clarinet, tenor saxophone, and bass fiddle. The funny story about the bass fiddle was I had a friend of mine by the name of Alan Keller who all his life was a was a well-known jazz musician. Sure. And his brother, Jack Keller, I don't know, you two, you guys are too young to remember the show called Bewitched. Oh, I oh, of course I remember it, yeah. 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 And he wrote all the music to that and sure. so forth. So they, they, they were, they were big-time uh, things. So one day, Al Keller <coughs> calls, calls me up, and he says, Willie, a terrible thing happened. He says, I'm playing this job out on Long Island tonight, and my bass fiddle player got sick. He says, I, can you help me out and come? I says, Al, I don't play bass. That's, a, says, that's a big difference yeah. from a clarinet yeah. and a saxophone, <laughs> by the way. He says, you come over to the house. In those days, he lived in Malvern, okay? You come over to my house, and we'll work it out. So I did. And he taught me enough that I was playing bass fiddle that night. That's amazing. That, that, night. that is amazing. Right. That, that, that's, that's really amazing. How did you meet Frank Sinatra? Well, I, I met him, and it was a funny circumstance in there. Uh, go, going back, because I had no, uh, known of Frank Sinatra and followed him you know, all, all his uh, career. But what happened is, uh, let me remember this, the best way to tell the, the story, is that uh, I had, uh, in the days that, it was 1965 or, or thereabouts, and I was the first one who brought 7-Eleven to the island here. Sure. And uh, I did 65 deals with, with them. Wow. Uh, with a fellow by the name of Ken Bishop. And one day, Ken Bishop and I were in Manhattan signing three deals, one of which was being signed by, and his name escapes me for the moment, but he's the one, if you go on 57th Street, the sure. Avon building, Sheldon Solo. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sheldon Solo. The okay. one that slopes down? That, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, the Grace building. We were signing the lease yeah. with him. The Grace building, um, yeah. yeah. We were signing a lease with him because he was a Comac builder, 
one family house builder. Really? That's yeah, where you got started? We were doing a 7-Eleven deal with one of his remnant deals sure. in, in there. So we finished the three deals, and Ken loved to drink, okay? And uh, he said, come on, we got to get a drink. So we're passing by, and all of a sudden I see a little restaurant called Jilly's. Yeah, of course. Okay. And that's, you know, a, a friend and uh, ultimately a partner of Sinatra's. And uh, I said, okay, let's stop here. And I start to talk about Sinatra. And I start to tell him about 1939, when the World's Fair was here, and they had the, uh, I forget what they called it, where all the bands, the big bands would come in. Sure. Uh, and play and so forth. And Sinatra, would, he was then uh, working for Harry James. Okay. Trumpet player in there. And uh, we, we go down, we sit in the cocktail lounge, and all of a sudden I look on the other side of the room, there's a, a table with about five men and a woman. And when all of a sudden he turns his head, I look. And I poke Ken Bishop, who was sitting right next to me, and we're having a drink. I said, look. And sure enough, Sinatra's there. Wow. Sitting at this table. And from there on, we, we're talking business, but both of us have our eyes <laughs> on that table. Of course. And all of a sudden, we see Sinatra get up, and he was, his, his table was in a little... Uh, I forget what you would call it, but it was right near the kitchen. Sure. Uh, he gets up, goes into the kitchen, comes back about five, ten minutes later, and then he's got two magnums of champagne in his hand. He hands them to the captain. Captain takes them and he puts them in uh, the, uh, what do you call the receptacles? Ice, yeah, ice buckets. Sure. In there. And we're watching and we're figuring he's buying somebody a drink. Right. In there. Because he's motioning to the captain, the captain's now, the captain now walks there and walks on our direction. And we're looking around from side to side as to who, who he's bringing it to. But he's bringing it right to my table. Really? And he sits, the, 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 two, the two magnums of champagne down and says, compliments from Mr. Sinatra. Well, I, wow. if I had another 50 leases there, I could have got Better <laughs> than anything. It was like unbelievable. And then uh, a very old, famous uh, uh, entertainer walked in, <coughs> Joey Lewis. And they get up, they embrace, they, uh, they're talking, and we're having a, like a, a real show there. But and at then, this point, you don't know why he sent <laughs> over the champagne. No. But what happens is they hold, their whole table gets up to leave. And with that, he walks across uh, to our table, and he says to me, he looks at me, how are you, Frank? How's the wife? How's the kids? <laughs> and, then, and I said, fine. fine. I, I took the brownie points of like course. that, and, and Ken Bishop's eyes are like <laughs> popping, okay? <laughs> But uh, very, very, very septic, and it was obviously a mistake. Right. That's Mistaken identity. Right. That's amazing. So what happens, we leave. I guess it was maybe two years later, three years later, okay. something like that. I'm out in Palm Springs, and I'm out with uh, some people because at that time, I'd gotten into the business of Ponderosa. Sure. Where, Steakhouse. Uh, we yeah. built about 10 restaurants. Yeah, all sure. sure. And then they, they had a seminar out there. And uh, I had been in a restaurant that I had heard about for years called Dominic's. And Dominic's was a unique restaurant because they catered in Italian food okay. and Jewish food. Really? You'd have on the table the, the Italian bread and so forth, and then they'd have the pickles and the sauerkraut oh, right? wow. uh, in there. And it was a well-known restaurant. And I'm in there, and all, all of a sudden, I spot two tables down there, somebody that I, I knew, not well, but I knew because he used to come in and sit, sit in at a little gin mill on Nassau Road in Roosevelt. Okay. Okay. And who did he sit in with? His cousins. His cousin was a man by the name of Victorelli who played bass fiddle. And then Mike Lacarosa who played trumpet. Okay. okay, and I on occasion would sit in there and play clarinet in there, and then, and he would come in and sing. 
and it was Vic Damone. Sure. Oh, wow. You know, the singer. Yeah. yeah. And there, but the three people you mentioned that name today, nobody knows who it is. But so he's sitting at the table, and he gets up to say hello to somebody at the table next to us, and he keeps looking at me. He doesn't know who I am. Sure. Okay. But he, he, he you know, I look familiar. Right. So I'm out of the words, you know me. So we, I finally get up, I speak to him, I point out to him where he knows me from. Sure. And, and so forth. And we walk out together. We walk out together, and he gives the uh, valet his ticket, and I give mine. His car comes up. My car doesn't come up. All of a sudden, the kid comes to me and says to me, I'm sorry, we locked the keys in the car. You have to get a hanger. <laughs> so we're now sitting outside, and I'm with my wife, and I'm with another couple. Sure. Okay. So we're sitting on the stoop right there waiting for the car to come up when all of a sudden a Chrysler station wagon pulls up. Now, in those days, Frank Sinatra worked for Chrysler. Okay. Okay. The, 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 uh, it opens up. And who comes out? And by the time I turn to my wife and the other couple to say, there's Sinatra, he's past us, and you can only see his head. And they said, that's not Sinatra. I said, that's Sinatra. Okay? So I now get up, and I walk in. By the time I walk in, he's embracing the, the maitre d' or whoever sure. was there. He had a piece of the restaurant. Yeah. He spent and a lot of time in Palm, Palm Springs. Yeah. Right? He lived in Palm Springs. Oh, he lived yeah. in Palm Springs. He lived in Palm Springs. From Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah. 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 So uh, uh, then, then he reaches for the phone. He's uh, the maitre d'. And when he reaches for the phone, he sees me. He sees, thinks I'm some autograph hound or something yeah. in there. So but he's on the phone. And at that time, he was married to Barbara Marks okay. uh, in, in there. And he's just calling her to say, I, I just got here, come on down. And as he's, the receiver is going, okay, I, I get the words in, I'm a friend of Dr. Norman Ertrike. Okay. And he looks at me and he says, by the time the phone is down, he says, how do you know Norman? And there. And I now tell him the affiliation. In Kemco, okay. the O is for Ertrike. I never okay. knew that. His partner was Marty Kimmel. Sure. So it was Kimmel, okay, and, and um, uh, Cooper, and Orentreich. Orentreich was the leading, and still is, I don't know if he's still alive in there, uh, uh, what do you call the... Uh, uh, have to do with like ENT, like... Ear like a throat No, 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 no. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. He did the hair plugs for Sinatra. Okay. <laughs> he, did the, he did the hair plugs for Sinatra. That's amazing. That's, that, that they knew each other. So all of a sudden he relaxed when I knew Orrin Trike. Sure. And, and he said, well, what's your relationship with him? I says, uh, uh, Milton Cooper and I share three grandchildren. Right. And then he relaxed. Okay. Right. And, and we spoke. And I said, look, and I never had the opportunity to thank you. He said, for what? <laughs> and I now repeat the incident that took place at Jilly's, where he sent over two bags of champagne, and he's laughing. And I said, yeah, I says, my wife and another couple out there, they were sitting on a stoop, and when you came up, I said, that's Frank Sinatra. And they said, no, it isn't. He said, why don't you ask him in for a drink? Wow. So I go outside, and I said very casually, I said, Frank would like to have a drink. <laughs> so we walked in, and we all had a drink together. And by that time, his wife walked, uh, came home, sure. and, and that, that, was, that was it. That's unbelievable. That's an amazing so story. That's, that's how I met Frank Sinatra. <laughs> that is unreal. Well, uh, that, I, listen, I know that you're very busy. And uh, you've been gracious to give us give us your time. Um, I, I guess just last last question for you is: over your career, the retail world has changed so drastically; it continues to evolve uh, with the internet and all of those things. We're seeing, you know, a lot of the big box stores uh, shrink in size, open fewer locations. What, what are your thoughts on the current state of retail and where it's going? Well, let me say this. We sensed 
that this was happening five, six, seven years ago. Sure. And we sort of prepared for it. Uh, not 100%, that's for sure. And yeah, but we did prepare for it, and we went, started to focus on different uh, industries, and uh, rather than uh, strictly go for fashion and uh, things of that nature. Yep. Uh, and and but today you, you're absolutely right. It's it's a transition that's going to be permanent, uh, and you have to look for different types of product uh, in order to sustain your your position. But the uh, the the talk of that uh, retail is finished. That's that's a lot of malarkey. Absolutely. Okay, that's not going to happen. It's going to be in a different fashion. Uh, everybody seems to be downsizing uh, today. We'll cope with that, like we cope with many other things over the last 40, 50 years, because what retailing is all about is changes, sure. and you have to change with the times. You can't just be stagnant and sit there w without change. You got to change those tomatoes uh, to someplace else, or or have a different product. Right. So uh, I think we'll all get through it. Uh, these things about uh, recessions, uh, you know, you're going to have recessions every 15, 20 years or so, and that's been the cycle since since I'm in a business. I went through the 60s, you had a recession, the 70s, you had a recession, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. It's, it's, it's inevitable. Sure. Because prices go up, uh, everybody starts to value things greater than they really are, there's no foundation for it, and then you have the bust, and you start all over again. Do you so, find opportunity in the downturns? Oh, Do absolutely, every time. I, I, I've been fortunate because even when I was in the residential end, and uh, I remember when interest rates were 6%, and they were now announcing after 30 years that rates were going to go to 7%, that people said the real estate business is finished. Real estate salespeople started to look in the, in the uh, classified ads for jobs. Sure. And I said, this is opportunity, that's what it is. And every time that's happened, I've done well, more than well, because I recognize that, and fellas like myself and so forth took the opportunities. There were more billionaires, billionaires made in the recession back in the, I forget which one it was, the 80s, the 90s, and, and, and so forth, because they took advantage of what was taking place, sure, in there. But uh, it's a cycle. We're in a, a cycle, a business, and it's never going to change. Absolutely, no, nothing remains the same. Absolutely. So yeah. you have to change, evolve with it, or you become irrelevant. Right. Like basically. today on the island, you know, everybody's now going crazy with apartments. Sure. Yeah. Well, I remember years ago when I built apartments, uh, Jerry Monta and I, who was Jerry Monta's holiday. Sure. Right. And then of we course. were partners for twelve years. And we built all over the place, okay? And then there was a stagnation, okay? You couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't get zonings for, for number one. Right. And so and that lasted a good 20 years in, in there. Uh, and then when you could, the next thing you know, everybody overbuilt. Sure. And, and there it was too much product on the market. And right, exactly. You had to absorb that product. And, and the in, inflationary... Uh, numbers that are a result, you, you, you can find more newcomers that come into the market and end up going uh, bust sure. because they, uh, they couldn't do anything wrong because somebody came in and offered them more money for this, more money for that. It's, it, it, you, you can't sustain yourself and you sustain the position by doing that. So you, you've got to really know your values. Excellent. So um, you have, again, I mean, so many accomplishments, um, too many to list here. Uh, the real estate school at Hofstra is named after, after you. Um, you, again, just you know, continue to push 
the, the, the real estate industry further and further. Um, if you could give some advice or guidance to younger people that are interested in getting into the real estate business, what do you think, what kind of qualities do you have to have to be successful in this business? I could describe that in one word. Please. Persistence. Persistence. You gotta, you gotta be able to stay with it and you gotta be able to take disappointments. Sure. Of course, that's, that's what we have. I always used to say to the people that work for me that out of every 20 opportunities that you have, you're gonna make one deal. Right. Okay, but you can't afford to be judge and jury and say, I'm not going to do this, the 18th one or the 17th, because that can be the one right. that, 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 that gels. Yeah. It's a tough business. It's not easy. It's definitely a tough business. Um, well, I want to take the opportunity to thank you for obviously making yourself available to do this. And beyond that, I want to take the opportunity to thank you personally for everything that you've done and continue to do for me. So thank you so much. My for pleasure, that. Jason. Yeah. I really appreciate this it. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.